Welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this episode of the podcast number 243. If software is eating the world, then, you know, it should eat security too, where ultimately security just becomes another supply chain function for getting product out the door. Software is eating the world was the now famous observation made by the legendary Silicon Valley venture capitalist Mark Andreessen. The phrase was meant to capture the trend of formerly brick and mortar businesses going online and entire industries being run on software and delivered as services from Amazon.com to Facebook and Netflix. Writing in 2011 in the Wall Street Journal, Andreessen said that in the next 10 years, he expected many more industries to be disrupted by software, much of it coming from Silicon Valley. The last decade certainly proved him right, but what Andreessen failed to mention and what escaped attention by many of us for years were the unique challenges and struggles that running an online software-driven business presents. At the top of the list of those struggles is cybersecurity. The rapid shift to services-based offerings has spread cyber risk around in ways that can be difficult to counter and manage, as the current focus on attacks on software supply chains demonstrates. So what's the solution? Well, there's no real silver bullet here, according to our guest this week. Christopher Hoff stepped into the role of Chief Secure Technology Officer at the firm LastPass back in May. LastPass is a cloud-based password management provider. Prior to that, Chris was the head of Bank of America's Never Down Critical Business Services Group, and he's a former CISO at Citadel. In this conversation, which was recorded on the sidelines of the Black Hat briefings, Chris and I talk about the challenges of securing a large-scale, highly sensitive cloud-based service like LastPass in the age of ransomware and stealthy supply chain compromises. We also talk about how regulations aimed at cybersecurity these days are out of step with the radical changes in how software is developed and consumed by organizations. Just a note that this conversation took place a couple weeks before news of a security compromise at LastPass broke on August 25th. That incident involved the breach of LastPass's development environment, though apparently not the theft of customer data. Nevertheless, Chris and I talk about the challenge of securing development environments and developers and how security needs to be baked into each phase of the software engineering process and software development pipeline. To start off our conversation, I asked Chris about his funky new title, Chief Secure Technology Officer, CSTO, I guess, and what his mandate was when he came on board at LastPass back in May. My name is Christopher Hoff, and I am the Chief Secure Technology Officer at LastPass. Chris, welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. Thank you, sir. This is a fairly new role for you, past few months, and um, kind of tell me, tell me what was your mandate coming on board at LastPass? Yeah, so not only is it a, a new role for me, but it is also sort of an unusually new title in the industry. Uh, sort of a, con, a conflation of chief technology officer and chief secure officer. And the whole point about the definition of the term, which is focused on outcomes, mm-hmm. being secure technology, mm-hmm. is, is sort of relates exactly to your question about what the charter is and what mm-hmm. I'm doing, right? So at the end of the day, we've got 33 million customers, 100,000 businesses that depend on... Including this guy right here. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that depend on um, us providing them with secure technology to keep them you know, pr- they're private and secure. And so one of the wonderful opportunities was... I've been in lots of different positions to either lead technology groups, and when you're leading security oftentimes, or 
uh, you can influence the direction of technology or security. In this particular case, I can do both. Mm -hmm. And when you think about the opportunity mandate, besides the obviousness of sort of leading technology, product engineering, and security, it's also about how we organize the teams to more effectively mirror how a modern-day software shop produces code. And what that means is making use of uh, a team's topology approach, which, which basically suggests that if you don't have one organization or one monolithic blob creating software, Dino Zovi and I were exchanging something on Twitter. He said, well, it's almost like if you don't have one org responsible for software design, you shouldn't have one giant org responsible for securing it. So you distribute security engineering across these product-aligned teams. Mm -hmm. You have another team that um, works on providing services like GRC and detection mm -hmm. engineering centrally mm -hmm. as a service. And so that's what we're doing. We're organizing the team to be more agile, more fluid. Uh, and deliver better, faster, and more secure technology. And so, hence, Chief Secure Technology Officer. We should probably back up. I mean, I think, you know, Security Ledger's listeners are fairly technical, so they probably know LastPass or know of it. But for those who may not, just describe LastPass's technology. It's password manager. I think LastPass was probably one of the first, if not the first, cloud-based password manager. There were other kind of desktop-based managers. but. The company has many things now. That's one of them. So, so maybe just give us the the elevator pitch on what LastPass is and does at this point. Yeah, I mean we're a digital identity company. We yeah. happen to have password management at our core in the in, in our DNA. The reality is that we serve two types of customers: consumers, mm -hmm. free and paid, mm -hmm. and businesses. And in between, there are a spectrum of offerings from password management to family password management, mm -hmm. which includes the. Uh, yep, yep, me too. Uh, good sort of selective sharing. Um, then you have this notion of teams, which is really like families for business, if you mm -hmm. think of it that way, and then business. And the business side, many people wouldn't be familiar with, let's say, if they're just a consumer customer, but it includes everything from multi-factor authentication with our own MFA app and integration with others, as well as single sign-on products. Uh, that also, if you don't choose to use our single sign-on, will integrate in a federated way. Mm -hmm. So um, that comes with a very rich policy-driven back-end that allows businesses to be incredibly thoughtful and um, specific about how they want their internal employees to be able to use, manage, distribute passwords, and then if they leave, how they can do that from a secure perspective. Mm -hmm. And also as part of the password management element itself across both business and consumer, you have things like dark web monitoring and all of the things that sort of give you a, a, an assessment of your security posture. So yeah, yeah password management, um, single sign-on, MFA mm -hmm. for both consumers and business. And you yourself, I mean, again, for our listeners who aren't familiar, you, you first of all, they should definitely be following you on Twitter because you're active. <laughs> That's and, an opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll actually, we'll, I'll link to your account because you are, you're, you're an influencer, oh, Chris. Gee. Over the years, particularly around issues around cloud, cloud yeah. security. But just for our listeners, give them just a, a little intro. This is your lifestyle intro to, <laughs> to Chris Hoff and kind of the, your journey in, in InfoSec. Yeah, and, and actually you bring up one point, sort of working backwards from cloud and virtual where I spent an awful lot of my time before yeah. I went to uh, a large financial institution and did engineering and ops. Yeah, the cloud piece is interesting because if you sort of work backwards from there, anytime there's sort of a new technology that's, that, that is disruptive, yeah. 
I've always spent time trying to understand sort of where it is and map it across its evolution, right, from Genesis all the way through to um, commoditized and, mm-hmm. and being able to prepare the security industry for both how folks need to think differently about what we do today and how this technology or operational model will change. Cloud virtualization were great examples of it. But what was really fascinating is it's super easy as I was considering this this position there's always new technology, always new tools. Walk it on the trade floor, you'll see a gazillion new things driven by, you know, a, an analyst's new term for something that, like bell bottoms, becomes back in style every five years, unfortunately, right? If you talk about lifestyle choices, that is not one I've made, by the way. Yeah, I've always sort of thought about it that way. The, the one thing that's that's brilliant to me about the um, transition from, like, what LastPass did on, in on-premises data centers to cloud is it gives you just sort of, it keeps pace, and you meet your customers where they are. So the device independent capability of being able to distribute stuff using cloud was a practical example when paired with the sort of zero knowledge base. I don't have your encryption keys. I can't, I, I can't decrypt your passwords, right? So right. there's a data protection piece that has always underpinned mm-hmm. my concerns about how we think about securing our identities. And so, you know, working backwards from, from cloud, this is a natural application of that. I started like most people my age with the amount of gray in my hair and beard. Um, you know, security wasn't a standalone uh, occupation when I started 30 years ago. Yes. We all came from network or system administration backgrounds. The mm-hmm. internet happened. We became known to be the security person, mm-hmm. and it became a specialization. And now it's just, it's grown from sort of a reasonably well-definable space mm-hmm. to now one that is incredibly fractured. And I don't say fractured in a bad way, but um, yeah, I've spread myself across sort of the application, information, user, device, network space mm-hmm. to get an appreciation that sort of led to my, I'll call it, as you did, my, my lifestyle choice of what I do for a living, which mm-hmm. is trying to think holistically about how technology impacts our privacy and security. This all comes to bear at, at your current role, yes. right? Your chief yep. secure technology officer yep. uh, at a company that is holding on to a lot of very important data, yes. 100% cloud-based uh, service, uh, likely a target for both cyber criminals, nation-state actors, but also, uh, like any other company, needs to develop new products and services, needs to continue expanding what you do, serve your customers better, and so on. What are like the priorities, as you see it, um, in in this environment that we're in? And and obviously here at Black Hat, you know, you you've noticed, I'm sure I have, you know, a lot more talk about um, supply chain security, a lot sure. more. Talk talk about attacks on you know, CICD uh, environments, on open source, and so on. What do you see as sort of, as you look at the threat landscape, you know, what are the priorities and what are the things that have your attention? First, I'd like to know how you got a hold of my to-do list, but everything you just <laughs> said is, is obviously top of mind for anybody that has sort of the CISO yeah. role. Yeah. And I think one of the things that's super important is to bring and balance the security point of view with the human factors usability point of view that Mm -hmm. I've always struggled with just how poor in many cases the ability is for people to make use of security products because in many cases we think about and we complain about users right I think the technology and drug dealing uh, uh, professions have the only two (laughs) professions I think it's used that they call their their the people that buy their products, users. I really hate that word, but I, I and I trip and I complain about it, but then I That's use it. True. So user experience, right? Whatever. But all of the things you talked about, <laughs> I'm I'm gonna get in so much trouble for this one podcast. Uh, but the, um, you know, I think I think for me, the first order design principle is balance. Um, like there are, I get lots of really helpful suggestions 
from researchers, both professional and otherwise, that mm-hmm. say, listen, I've, mm-hmm. I've got something I want to talk to you about about your product. And, mm-hmm. and they say, it's serious. I'm like, okay, so we've got a bug bounty program. have had that for years mm-hmm. with Bug Crowd, fantastic mm-hmm. partners, mm-hmm. Casey and team. Um, but then there's lots of folks that, that, that want to sort of, as a customer, business or otherwise, say, you know, I've got a problem. And so the challenge we have when we think about usability and what it means to uh, build a product that is secure in ways that your consumers, customers can trust it is where do you draw the line in terms of what your product does from a security perspective um, to protect itself? Um, because in, in many cases, when I have these conversations with, with researchers, it starts with, okay, what's the threat model? Like, t- talk to me about how you came up with this challenge or this, this problem. And if it starts with, imagine I have complete physical control and access to your system, I'm like, okay, yes. Or, um, you know, there's, a, like, the, every week there's a new Steeler malware story that says it's targeting password managers because it's, tar- you know, it's like the John Dillinger thing. Why do you yep. rob banks? That's where the money is. So, so it basically says, oh, my God, this malware can, can sort of, you know, steal all your passwords yeah. and and so the challenge is like for example in that particular case uh, if, if you say well you know you you read these stories and seven thousand words later they buried the lead that a user has had to they got fished or even just convinced to go download a piece of code that installed malware that mm-hmm. acts and impersonates them mm-hmm. and if that's the case and they have you know even though we don't know your master password we have no way of decrypting the password and mm-hmm. if you lose it we can't either mm-hmm. but they authenticate and they unlock their vault now for example in that particular case they will well if they unlock the vault then this piece of malware can essentially just go through your whole vault well we don't decrypt for example, the entire vault. Mm-hmm. We when do it record by record because right. essentially what you're doing is right. copying and pasting in clear right. text. So that's a right. functional piece of the user interface. Right. So then they'll raise the point, well, you should be able to detect if it's like 60 records a second. I said, I could, but let me ask you something. There's the pure security view of yes, I could, and I could which I could close the vault. What do I tell the user? Mm-hmm. Sorry, customer. Mm-hmm. Uh, I tell them, oh, I've locked your vault because there's suspicious system activity. Mm-hmm. You're likely infected by malware. Well, what if I'm wrong? Mm-hmm. Or what if I'm right? What do they do about it? So the interesting thing of balance yeah. of yeah. how we think about defense in depth. And if you're talking about a 72-year-old retiree mm-hmm. in Sarasota, Florida, mm-hmm. that or my 88-year-old dad, same, yeah. that doesn't have expertise, and the, and they're thinking, okay, my system's got malware on it. What the hell? What? First of all, I don't even know what that means. Second of yeah. all, what do I do about it? So yeah. this is a long way of saying when we think about user experience and design and, and practicality, building enough instrumentation and observability into the platform to protect mm-hmm. it. And um, there is a lot of that already. We think mm-hmm. about you know, authorized devices, IP address, triangulation, trusted dev- to protect the platform. Cloud, it doesn't really matter whether it's cloud or not. That's just another threat factor, right? The, the point here is that a lot of times that balance and why I, why I use this as an example is just because we can doesn't mean we should. Mm-hmm. There are times that we absolutely should mm-hmm. and it's very hard to do without impacting the customer experience and we have to make those trade-offs and that is what security is about. It yeah. is about protecting people by making appropriate risk-adjusted decisions. Right. The user experience is also governed by the platform and operating system right. that it's on. So I operate in on the mobile platform, mm-hmm. on Android and iOS, two mm-hmm. very different sets of exposed APIs and mm-hmm. user interfaces. I run on Windows, mm-hmm. I run on Chrome OS slash Chromium books, I run on Mac OS, I run on tablets, laptops, mobile phones, I run as a browser extension, mm-hmm. I run as a web page, which accesses cloud services. All of those have their own unique sort of constraints and benefits. And so when you say you're on it multiple times a day, you will have a user or a customer that will be using it on their laptop, in a web page via the extension, on their phone, and it has to be 
as fluid as it possibly can be too, which is another piece of that balance, right? I think we're probably used to at this point the CISO. Yep. Maybe at one point that person reported to like the CIO, but generally now they're, they're, they're kind yep. of separate. They're reporting to the board themselves. Where does this position fit in and what's on your purview? Do you, is development report to you? Yep. Like what, how does it work? So first of all, if you look at the evolution of the CSO or CISO mm -hmm. role, you see a, a large set of conversations around who they should report to. Uh, in our particular case, cybersecurity is a cybersecurity company. Uh, it's important enough that I report to the CEO directly. And as part of that, I have uh, two reporting structures that report to me. The uh, engineering, product engineering team, mm -hmm. in charge of all development. And within that team are those embedded security engineers we started off talking about that mm -hmm. service those, the engineers. They, in turn, sort of dotted line report to me, if you think of it that way. But then we have what we call the core security team which provides those services that are, we consume and provide services from the product engineering team. And then there's actually the IT uh, department where they sort of, uh, especially for my, my, my employees, they provide services that manage um, sort of the devices that we support within the enterprise. I don't own that piece, but they are my eyes and ears and hands and arms. Yep. But I own both the classical core engineering functions and the developmental engineering functions that also uh, apply to security also. So it's a, it's a it's an interesting hybrid role because most people would then say, ooh, separation of duties. You should have a separate security officer and you know chief security officer, chief technology officer. At the end of the day, what this does in a, in a company our size is allow us to implement the balance associated with making those decisions faster but prioritizing security in a way that it gives our users comfort and we can hit two birds with one stone. As a sort of a private company that isn't subject to the rigor of building an organization around a compliance and regulatory mandate, even though I have tons of regulatory mandate, it's the outcomes to me that matter. So if I can document and prove to you that decisions around security versus technology are well-made, ratified, discussed, debated, uh, and then reasoned with threat models that are documented artifacts of how we came to a decision, then this notion of, you know, you don't have separation of duties, I actually do because I trust my teams, mm -hmm. right? So I have the technologists who will get into rabid debates with my security teams and vice versa, but I also have incentivized the product engineering, the embedded product engineering teams to do something that most security people don't think about, which is real security orgs ship. They are software engineering teams at their core if you're a product engineering mm -hmm. company that ships software. So if software's eating the world, then you know it should eat security too, where ultimately security just becomes another supply chain function for getting product out the door. And if you're doing it right, you integrate with the CICD implementation frameworks pre and post commit. You implement detection engineering capabilities across your platforms. You learn from one another and they are incentivized to participate to ship code. Anybody at that point can pull the chain to stop the conveyor belt if mm -hmm. somebody has mm -hmm. a problem. And you're not penalized Toyota for model. it. Yeah. Toyota model, exactly yeah. right. So. Yeah, it's um, it's a it's an interesting role, but I'm also not the only one. Denise Cruz in the UK has had this role a couple of different times. Uh, last one was at Glasswall. There's a couple of other people that may not have the same title, but they have the same opportunity. And I think at the end of the day, there's two parallel courses: separate security, monolithic organization, carrot stick model, control function, onerous, first line, second line, third line, like a big bank, or a more agile organization that may be not public or not as heavily regulated that can actually make better security decisions faster and be more effective in so it. you think in some ways regulations work against this? I think the structure is well-meaning, but I think it is outdated and antiquated and does not match how modern organizations actually consume and produce their products. And even if you don't, if you're not a software development company, I gave this in my B-Sides keynote, the reality is Mark Andreessen's term of, you know, software's eating the world. If that's the case, even if you don't produce software, 
you use it every day and your use of it has implied security decisions that need to be made. So yeah, I think, I don't want to say regulation or compliance is bad. I don't think it is at all. I think it is a useful and meaningful thing to do if what it drives is incentivized behavior to do the right things for this sort of the floor, but you should aim well above compliance. It's not the ceiling. I mean, we've had this conversation a lot, but... Frankly, it's it's sad to say, but each one you know never waste a good crisis. What Solar Winds did was focus an industry on thinking differently about how to think about code production, right? So they completely revamped their yep. software development lifecycle and tool chain, and that's fantastic. So now you're talking about code reproducibility, mm-hmm. which is I should be able to rebuild first of all the code that is there in my golden images, for example, my repos. I have a very good understanding of. Now we can get into the software bill of materials argument about whether that's the floor or the ceiling useful or not but at the end of the day um, sorry for the background noise uh, at the end of the day software building materials is one component about thinking about okay what's in my what are the ingredients in my my end thing I'm cooking yes. and then to, if, if you have a golden master image and you have something for example that includes uh, new branch additions or you know things that have been merged from pull requests then if I build from the golden image and I build from the net new thing it should produce the same code output and if it doesn't, that's bad. We need to figure out why. That could be malicious. It could be accidental. But but thinking about that differently and code reproducibility is a huge piece of the puzzle when you think about your supply chain and when you ask your suppliers how they think about that. So mm-hmm. that's a lot of what I'm also focused on is my supply chain. There's a lot of focus here at Black Hat. Um, Adam Shosak's uh, talk on you know uh, fully trained Jedi, you are not. Yes. Really interesting. Really sort of taking that Jedi model of education and being yeah. like, maybe this is not the best model for yeah. what we need to accomplish. Yeah. Um, you know, you walked in um, in your new role to a very mature organization, development organization. What's your take on the need to educate development staff around you know security principles and yeah. maybe what the best way to go about doing that is? Yeah. Well. Well, I, I think it is, in general, incredibly important and not done enough. So developer experience should include the security pieces. Um, I was lucky enough to walk into an organization that has, and Adam Shostak had actually participated in some of the uh, development of our threat modeling program. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, we took the uh, elevation of privilege game, and it's part of our developer curriculum. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can run it anytime you want. Threat modeling itself, we it, we took the stride model, so mm-hmm. spoofing, tampering, non-reputation, information disclosure, denial, denial of service, escalation of privilege, and we added the P. Now, striped, and the P is for privacy, which is an equally important part. So, striped. For me, I was so thrilled because I looked at the program that had been built, and I'm like, the security engineering teams that are embedded require threat models. Right. As if you make any substantive change to the the platform or the code, and so. I was just, I mean, I was just so lucky and relieved. Like, I, you know, I was, I was getting ready to come into an organization. I didn't know where they were in terms of maturity. Yeah. I, the, yes. the, um, the sigh that, came, that happened yes. when, I, when I realized it was an organization that I didn't have to explain threat modeling right. to. That's part of the required training that the, every time we have one of these conversations, we have documented threat models so we're not finger painting in the air. At any rate, yeah, it's incredibly important. I think one piece that's interesting is developer experience, but developer advocacy is a new area of focus for lots of companies also that I think um, I don't know enough about Mm -hmm. in large companies to understand how they, you know, what are they advocating for? Mm -hmm. Um, Are they a really great conduit for education and making sure the developers are doing the right thing? Chris, is there anything I didn't ask you that you wanted to say? Uh, No, other than, look, I'm I'm really, really thrilled about um, 
my new role at LastPass. I hope yeah. if anybody as a customer or a potential customer, personal business or otherwise, has thoughts, suggestions, etc., they know where to reach me on Twitter. You're going to show everybody, unfortunately, where my Twitter feed leads, where my Twitter <laughs> feed lives. But um, look, we try to be humble. We try to be um, understanding. We try to be as nimble as we can in terms of bringing new features, but also from a security perspective, if there are concerns or comments, uh, I publicly state that you know I'm as the chief security technology officer. That's my job. Yeah. So send it to me. Hey, thanks so much for coming on and speaking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. We'll have you back. Cool. Thanks, Paul. Christopher Hoff is the Chief Secure Technology Officer at LastPass. He spoke with us on the sidelines of the Black Hat briefings in Las Vegas back in early August.